And good morning to everybody. If you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open them to the book of Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11. We look at the 10th plague now that's going to come upon the land of Egypt. Now what I think is really amazing about this is that it's the 10th plague, not the first plague. Which means that there has been nine plagues beforehand to get Pharaoh's attention. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And this is certainly what has happened to Egypt and Pharaoh concerning the nation of Israel without being conquered, thereby invite, because of Joseph's interpreting a dream for Pharaoh and uh, averting the great famine destruction that would have come upon Egypt if it hadn't been for him, but now turned into slaves. The cry from the people of Israel went up. The Bible says God heard their cry and sent their deliverer Moses. We remember that Moses tried intervening for the children of Israel. He killed an Egyptian that was beating an Israelite. They, instead of being grateful, turned him into Pharaoh. Moses heads to the backside of the wilderness for 40 years. And there, hiding out, sees a burning bush, walks up to it when he doesn't see it consumed. And the Lord spoke to him from that bush, saying, Go set my people of Israel free. So this is where we come. He goes, tells Pharaoh, Let my people go, that they may come and serve me. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. The more miracles that God did, the harder his heart got. And you know, I have found that to be the case with the Pharisees or anybody else that is in a posture against God. The more miracles that God does, doesn't always make a person believe in God. But in this particular case, it hardened his heart, just as it did with Jesus doing miracles, hardened the Pharisees' heart. Now, did Jesus harden the Pharisees' heart? Well, you might say, yeah, he did, in that he provided the miracle in which they adversely reacted to it. Just like Pharaoh. Let's pray. Father, as we go to your word this morning, may these words come alive in our heart. May you remind us of your faithfulness. And for every person listening in this room, Around the world, we just ask you now that your Holy Spirit would rest upon us. And God, that we would remember these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I always pray that God would help me remember things because I forget so much stuff. You ever notice that? You go into a store to buy something and you go in there and you go, now what did I come in here to get? You ever go out to the garage guys and say, I'm going to go out in the garage and grab that. You go out there and you go, whoa, what did I come out here for? And you bring something in the house because you know you're supposed to do it. And you bring it and you go, what did I bring that in the house for? Well, we forget. That's why I believe the Bible says to be renewed by the Spirit, God's Spirit in our minds. And I believe that, again, we need that because we do forget. Think of all the things that God has got you through as a Christian, through your life. You know, whether you've been saved a day or whether you've been saved uh 150 years. I mean, you, you know, you got a big trial and you cry out to God, oh God, get me through this. Please get me through this. And God gets us through it. And we go, wow, God, you're great. Hallelujah. And we're out having a hallelujah breakdown. And, and then what happens is our next trial comes. And then we go, God, where are you? 
Well, isn't it amazing how quickly we can forget the victories in our lives that God has given us over the past? And then yet the next trial we forget. Well, thank God, God understands our frames and that we're frail. Well, as we look at this today, God dealing with Moses, God dealing with Pharaoh. So we find here that uh, chapter 11, verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, I will yet bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. He's not going to just let you go. He's going to kick you out. Now, you got to remember... Pharaoh's magic men, counselors, came to him and said, look, hey, we can't copy anything that this, that this God of Israel is doing. You better capitulate. You better give in because there's not going to be nothing left of Egypt. You got to remember these plagues that came upon these nine plagues. And you would think it would have softened Pharaoh's heart. It would have got his attention, but it didn't. And I look at the nine plagues, friends as God's mercy, even to Egypt, even to non-believers. The 10th plague, though, this one is going to be extremely severe. For up to this point, nobody, people, have died. Their livestock have died. Their, their uh, uh, ecosystem is pretty much goofed up. They've lost almost all their food because of the, as we studied last week, the locusts that came upon the land. And what all these other plagues didn't destroy, the locusts finished off. Then the darkness came upon them. And every one of these plagues were really beamed at the gods of Egypt, whether it was the frog god whether it was the god Ra, the sun god, all of the gods that they served, all of them, God smashed it. And it is interesting sometimes when God deals with individuals, maybe you can think back in your own life, when God began to deal with you, the very things that you had trusted in are the very things that let you down. Well, you know, man, I've got my friends. And then your friends let you down. Well, hey, I got my woman. And she leaves you. Well, hey, I've got my money. I lose my job. Hey, I've got... And we have all these different things that we put our trust in. And I think a lot of times God just lets those things fall on their face to show us you cannot trust in things of the world, but you must trust in God. And God, I am alone. So we want to be sure to do, uh, again, to remember that God does these things because he loves us, getting our attention. So he says he's going to kick you out. So, verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor, every woman from her neighbor, articles of silver, articles of gold. So the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, uh, moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Now, here's why. The people of Israel did not experience the wrath of the plagues. And friends, that got throughout the land of Egypt. Now, when the children of Israel went, 
and and some of your the the old King James says the word borrow, but if you really look in the original Hebrew, it's the word simply to ask. In other words, they weren't going to say, "Hey, let me borrow your uh, earrings for tonight, and then tomorrow I'll give them back." No, because they were going to leave. So God said, "Go out and ask. Just say, give me something." Isn't that weird? So God tells Moses, tell the people of Israel, go to the Egyptians and say, give me something. Okay. Now, why would they do that? I believe at this point, Egypt was scared to death of the people of Israel. You don't know what next crazy plague is going to come. And I believe when they came and said, can I have something? You might call it trick or treat. They came and they said, give us something. I think they were going, here, take this and this. Anything else you want in here? Just please, no more, no more darkness, no more plagues, no more locusts, no more frogs, no more lice, no more anything. We just, whatever you want, take it. Well, you know, this is kind of interesting because God put it in the hearts of the Egyptians to give to them. Now, why? Because they were hard taskmasters, the Egyptians were. And this was one of the ways that God in his divine providence says, you're going to pay back for the slavery you put them in. You're going to pay back the children of Israel. And so they gave them gold and silver and whatever they asked for. And it says, then Moses said, thus saith the Lord, about midnight, I will go out throughout the midst of Egypt and the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn and the maidservants behind the handmill and the firstborn of the beasts. In other words, the firstborn of all the land of, e- of Egypt is going to die. Wow, this had to be its like some kind of a crazy thing that he was saying. What he told the children of Israel uh, was about to happen. Now, first of all, I think this is really important because Jesus said something really important in the Gospels. He says, henceforth, I'll no longer call you servants, but friends. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. It's God's good pleasure to let you know what's on the heart of God and what's coming down the pipe. You know what I mean by that? That's why we have the book of Revelation. That's why we have Matthew chapter 24, Luke 21, and book of Daniel and Ezekiel and all the prophetic books that oftentimes we that uh, believe in the Bible, not all Christians do. In fact, do you realize only 30% in a Barnhouse study, only 30% of Christians calling themselves Christians believe that Jesus physically raised from the dead? Think about that for a minute. 30% of Christians do not believe that Jesus physically raised from the dead. Well, if Jesus hasn't rose from the dead, our faith is in vain. We have nothing to speak of because then Jesus didn't have power over death. And by the way, that's what this 10th plague is about. There's some interesting parallels in the Bible. Jesus said like this, he said, search the scriptures in them. You think you have eternal life, but they are, which testify of me. Now, a couple of things here we want to look at very quickly. All of you are aware that even Pharaoh's son died. 
in, in this, in this 10th plague. We'll get up to that in a little bit, but you want to remember a couple of things. The Bible says he that knew no sin, speaking of Jesus Christ, became sin for us that we would be the inheritors or we would be the the receivers of God's promises. Jesus became our sin. That's why when he was on the cross, he cried out, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he became you. He became me, our sins on the cross. Isn't it interesting that Pharaoh's son dies and the very next thing that happened is the children of Israel are on their way to the promised land. Jesus Christ dies for you and me and we are on our way to the promised land as well. Isn't it interesting that the focal point of the 10th plague was that the sin of Egypt finally was manifested so great death was required and Jesus Christ became your and my sin that died on the cross in our place. I like that. Jesus paid a price I could never pay. And for you, that's why it's such, it's such a great thing. See, that's what makes you, me, not a cult. Because a cult says, in order to really be forgiven, you got to get out there and knock on doors. In order to be forgiven, sell flowers in airports. In order to be forgiven, you've got to know our church's creed. You've got to jump through the hoops. And they have all these things that you've got to do in order in some way to be acceptable to God. Isn't it great to know you're acceptable to God right now, right where you are, today, at this moment, not because of anything you and me have done, but what God has done for us. I like that. We are wrapped in his righteousness, friends. God doesn't see all the rotten things that you and me have done in our life. What he sees is that righteous coat of Christ wrapped around us. If you're born again. Now, if you're not born again, you're standing in your nakedness of your sin. Everybody, uh, God sees it all. But the Bible says that he wraps us in that blood coat of righteousness For this reason, Christ died. Your sins are forgiven. You know, the devil would do nothing greater than to drag your past back into your face again and throw it at you. And, you know, he gets a lot of of mileage by doing that to Christians. He just does. Look what you did yesterday. Look what you did five years ago. Look what you did ten years ago. Yeah, I did do those things. I'm a bad person. I mean, that's what we get. Because we know, by nature, we're sinners. But we pass from death unto life, and now the Bible says we're new creatures in him. And when I look back, I look at the cross. When I look forward, I look at a risen Savior. See, this is why it's important that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, because we have life eternally. He demonstrated that he had power over death. Now, this is what this whole 10th plague is about. Because the unbelievers, the firstborn dies, the believers, not one thing happens to them. Let's go on. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before or ever like it ever again. But against the children of Israel, there shall... Shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast? And you shall know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. 
God does make a difference, friends, between the world and you. Remember that. It doesn't matter what's happening to the world. What matters is your relationship with God and your relationship with God. God is greater than the things that Satan has purposed against you to destroy you. I've seen this over and over and over again in my own personal life. The devil wants to kill us. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And like a Timex, we take a licking, but we keep on ticking. I don't know why everybody wants to beat on a Timex watch. That's one of the great things I was, I was, you know, it's, have you ever, did you ever see those commercials years ago with Timex? Takes a lick and he keeps on, ah, my name is Bill. I found my Timex watch out in the field after two years. It was still working. Well, I would say maybe Timex ought to spent more time on making a better watch band. Just a thought. But the thing is, as I look at this, I realize we are a focus of the devil's wrath because he knows all the influence that you're going to have in a world that doesn't know him. And that's why you are buffeted. You know, the devil doesn't waste time on people that do nothing for the kingdom of heaven. You know, the, David said that. He, he said, I become envious of people in the world. Nothing bad happens to them. They just kind of bump along. While they're on their way to hell, he doesn't have to do anything with them. But you are a live fish swimming upstream. And let me tell you, the devil comes against us with all of his wrath. I believe this is what the Pharaoh saw in the children of Israel. Pharaoh saw the benefit of what the children of Israel were doing for Egypt. I believe the world likes to take advantage of us as well. You need to be aware, because if you don't know that, that God makes a difference between the world and his own, that's a lie that the devil would like to say, oh, it happens to everybody the same. No, it doesn't. Now, you say, well, if I'm a Christian and God loves me, why do I got to go through the junk I go through then? I don't know. You know, I wish I just had a really good answer I could give you other than this. God in his love trains us for what is to come in the future. And I know sometimes the lessons come hard, and they do. But I tell you, a lot of times I have learned hard lessons and I never forgot them. Anybody here, if you've ever um, had a hard lesson, whether it be a blue lights in the rearview mirror, or whether it be something you did wrong in making something or putting something together, you learn the lesson. And the next time you don't make that mistake. And I want to just encourage you that God sees it all. And God does make a difference in your life. Because again, you represent him in a world that doesn't know him. Verse 8. All these, your servants shall come down. And by the way, verse 8 here is kind of a, a reflection of what has happened over the last nine plagues. All these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out and all the people who follow you, after that I will go out. Then he will, he, then he went out from Pharaoh with great anger. By the way, Moses became angry at Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was extremely angry at Moses. In fact, on the uh, last plague, the one before, 
He said, Pharaoh said, if I ever see you again, Moses, I'm going to kill you. And Moses said, great, dude, I don't want to see you either. (laughs) And he left. Well, notice it says here, but the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. You know, if you go back to chapter 5, Pharaoh said, who is this God of Israel? (laughs) Okay, you want to know? Roll the tape. And that's what happened. When he said, I don't know who this God is, well, let me introduce you. And that's what Moses did to God. Now, again, it wasn't that God was trying to destroy Pharaoh, but God knowing how to put his finger on the problem in an individual's life. This, friends, is what God specializes in. He knows. As an example, remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. The Bible says he was a rich young ruler. Man, those are three things that are cool. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. Now, usually sometimes you'll find somebody a ruler, but they're usually old by the time they got there. But this guy was rich, young, a ruler, comes to Jesus, and he said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said to him, sell all you have, give the money to the poor, come and follow me. The Bible says he went away sad because he was very wealthy. Now, here's the point. Jesus knew exactly where, and by the way, before he said that, he said, um, he said, uh, you know what the commandments say? And he says, I've done all those, I've done all those things since I was young. Rich young ruler and, and kept the law. That's pretty impressive. And Jesus said, there's just one thing you lack. Oh, I love that. One thing. I wish God would look at me and say, just one thing, Mike, you lack. I think God would look at me and say, Mike, there's about a billion things you lack. But God says, just one thing you lack. Boy, this guy was good. He was good, real good. One thing you lack. Sell what you have, give the money to the poor, come and follow me. His money was his God. And God put his finger right on that thing. That's what you got to do. And the response was, he went away sad because he was very wealthy. And that's when Jesus said, how hard is it for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. The point is, is this. And, And I've seen this in my own life. Maybe you have too. You know, you, you, you come to Christ, you've got a $5,000 a month drug habit. You're partying down all the time. Your car's a wreck. Nothing works. But man, I'm cool. And you get born again. God comes in your life. And all of a sudden you realize, hey, I've been wasting a lot of my resources. I've been doing a lot of stuff with my money I shouldn't be doing. And all of a sudden now, for the first time after you're born again, you turn everything over to God. God, hey, I actually have a few dollars in my wallet. <laughs> that never happened before. Because if I had a few dollars in my wallet before, I'd go buy a baggie, you know. Or a new bong. Whoa. Legal in some states. Well, anyway. So anyway, you, you, you do all these things. And, and, and now you start having money. 
See, but and when when we come to Christ, that's the way it is. See, I mean, I mean, you know, and I've used this illustration a lot, but it's so true. Oh Lord, let the washing machine do another load. Oh hallelujah! You know, we're just have you know. Oh God, let it start one more time. Oh, thank you, God. But all of a sudden, we start getting money. Because God got a hold of our lives. It's the principles of God applied to our life. Now we have money. I buy a new car. I don't pray about my old, my car starting anymore. It's new. It's under warranty. I don't pray about that anymore. And the washing machine. I got a brand new and I don't pray about that anymore. In fact, I don't pray about anything anymore because I bought everything new. See what happens? He looked at the rich guy and said, the thing you lack, so which have, give the money to the poor, come and follow me. What's amazing, all we know about this guy, he was a rich, young ruler that kept the law, okay? But we don't know his name. Had he done what Jesus said, we would know who he is, like Matthew, Mark, and all the other disciples of Jesus. When you look at what really goes on in life, you, you realize Jesus put his finger on the exact thing where the issue was. This is what God did in the Old Testament concerning Pharaoh. He knew exactly where to touch his life, what he needed. Pharaoh had gods, but they were false gods. They had the sun god, I guess, and as I said, the frog god, the, 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 the sun god. They had all these gods. And God knew where to touch and say, see, I'll prove to you they are no gods. And second of all, they will not save you. Again, we think about that in our own lives. We think about the things that we have that we've protected ourselves with. Well, again, I got my friends. I got my money. I got my... And all those things, when you really get in trouble, will not save you. You don't understand, Mike. Man, I got 401ks. I got 801ks. I've got K's on top of K's. I got lots of money. Until you go to the doctor and they give you negative prognosis and say you got six months to live. Now what's your money going to do for you? See? That's the problem. Because we have put our hope in something that is passing away. And so God knows where to touch an individual's life to get their attention. I don't really believe God wants to destroy the wicked. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. It doesn't say God, God so loved some of the world. He said, for God so loved the world. Whosoever would believe in him. Hey, that's anyone. I like that. That's a good thing about God. God don't have favorites. God to save anybody. And he knows how to do that. Now, again, sometimes we don't realize we need God till we have a problem. Why do we go through trials? I believe sometimes, friends, it's to cause us to realize what we have in ourselves is not capable of meeting the challenge of what's in front of us. In other words, I've got my education. I've got these life experiences Here comes a problem down the line. I can meet that because I've got the intellect. I've got the friends. I've got this. I can meet that challenge. But then God gives us something bigger than us that drives us to our knees. And we cry out to God, God help. And God says, now you're going to know who I am. I like that. You see, God's bigger than your problem. Sometimes I forget that. 
And God has to remind me. I'd love to just say, okay, God, I've arrived. Hey, let's put the the landing gear down. Let's just stay right here. And God says, no, because we got a lot to do. And God moves us along to accomplish what he wants. So verse 9 again, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. Now again, this is up till the ninth plague. Now God tells the children of Israel what he's about to do, and now we find chapter 12. Now, again, when you, when you read Hebrew, and this is one of the things that you'll find in Genesis, the creation story, uh, this is typical Hebrew writing, and here's how it works. Hey, yesterday we went to the store. When we got up in the morning, we put our clothes on and ate breakfast, and then we got in our car and we drove by the park the kids swang on the swings, and then we made our way down to the mall, and then we went into the store. Oh, so you went to the store twice, the day before and today? No. It, the Hebrew writing is that they will make a statement and then go back in and fill in the details. This is what happens in Genesis 1-1, and then you, subsequently when you get into Genesis 1-2, 1-3, you get in the details of what he did. Now, again, as we just read, it says, the firstborn, if you go back to chapter 11, verse 5, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. This is what's going to happen. Now, chapter 12 brings us in how God's going to do it. You know, really, I know it's kind of funny, but some people say, well, that's very poetic writing. But you know what? It's our lives, man. You you see, God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to do all those things. I'm going to take, I'm going to do all those things for you. And then as we live our life, God fills in the details. It's the same thing. God has already declared we are more than conquerors through Christ who saved us. We already know that. But then God comes along in the subsequent chapters, filling in and saying, this is how I'm going to do it. Now, first of all, sometimes we run completely out of our own resource, but that drives us to the, to the cross, the supplier, Jesus Christ, the supplier of all of our needs. But we forget that sometimes. So letting God be God as we do this. Now, as we just briefly look at this, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, and by the way, God will speak to you wherever you are, whether you're in the most pagan land in the world or whether you're there in church on Sunday morning. This month shall be the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, the first of the month, this is Passover. This is in April, okay? But somebody might say, well, it says this is going to be the beginning of the year for you. What about Festival of Trumpets and and Yom Kippur and, and the Jewish New Year that's in September, October? Well, see, that's kind of the... You have the spiritual calendar of the Passovers, 
And then you have the kind of the rest of the country, the non-spiritual. It's the way they did it. So actually they had two calendars, a secular calendar and a religious calendar. This is speaking about the religious calendar here. And speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th day, Of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. One lamb, one household, okay? And the household is too small for the lamb. Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need, you shall make a count for the lamb. So in other words, if you can't do it, then you borrow from your neighbor. It's kind of called forced friendship. Come over for dinner tonight. You're going to do this. Now again, this gets down. And notice that the Bible says that Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So you, you look at this and you realize there's a lot of parallels here. And we're going to see that more and more as we read on. It says... Um, Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male from the first year, that you may take it either from the sheep or from the goats. It needs to be without spot or wrinkle. It needs to be without blemish is what he says. Now, it's interesting when Jesus came in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and they laid the palm branches down. Blessed is he has come to the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. We always celebrate Palm Sunday. And then the following week is when they crucified him. That week, the Sanhedrin grilled Jesus every single way they could, looking for a flaw in him, just as the children of Israel initially were to inspect the very best for their flock. In other words, they took the junk to the dump. They gave the best to God, Okay. Well, they were examining Jesus. Remember, they, they, they challenged him in every way. Uh, they said, should we pay taxes or not? And Jesus said, give me a coin. He holds, whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. Then give to what Caesar's is Caesar and give to God what is God. Man, I'll tell you, every way they tried to find fault with Jesus, it didn't work. They challenged him politically. They challenged him scripturally. They challenged him according to Levitical law. They did all those things trying to find fault with Jesus. While on the other side of town, preparing for Passover, you had all these priests examining all these flocks of sheep for spots and for blemish and all these things. So he says here, you don't want to give anything that's not right to God. Verse six, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So at sunset, all these lambs were to be slain. Uh, verse seven, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So wherever the the lamb is going to be eaten. You take the blood of that and use a hyssop, which is like a piece of sagebrush, and you dip it in the blood and you put it on the sides and on top. Notice it does not say on the threshold. You know, it's interesting when you 
get married. Uh, the, a customary thing is to pick your bride up and carry her across the threshold. You probably heard about that. But not here with the blood. Why? Because to trample the blood of Christ underfoot is wrong. But on the sides and on the top, the same principal places that Jesus bled for us, his hands, the crown of thorns on his head. And so it says, and it says that then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw boiled at all in water, but roasted, barbecued, its head with its legs and its entrails. I mean, you you just stick the stick through the lamb and turn it. Well, here, what's really weird is this. Why did God do this? In fact, they were to eat all of it, as we'll read on here. Well, why is that? Because they were getting ready to get expelled out of Egypt. This was going to be one of the last meals that they had for a little bit. And so literally, they were going to stuff themselves. Now, we always hear about the children of Israel leaving Egypt. We're very much aware of that. After the 10th plague, the, all the firstborn is dead. Pharaoh is heart-stricken, heartbroken. He kicks Israel out. But there's something interesting that a lot of people miss. Not only did some million plus Israelites leave Egypt, but some million lambs inside of them left Egypt as well. You see, the Bible talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, God's inside of you. And what an interesting picture that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, is in us as we go into the promised land. But that's the way God works. Friends, you're not in your Christian experience alone. This is one of the things that God says that he will do, that he will come into you. Now again, something else. Don't boil it. Don't eat it raw. Barbecue it. I just wonder what that night smelt like in, in, in the land of Goshen there in Egypt, that very last night. You'd go outside. I don't know how many people like a good-smelling barbecue. They're good. And to walk out and smell all that barbecued lamb going, ooh, I feel a Euro coming on. No, I mean, they walked outside, and they smelled all this barbecue going on. What does this mean? You see, people in Egypt didn't understand the things of God. Today, the people of the world don't understand the things of God. They don't understand there's a paradigm shift coming in the world. It's called the tribulation period. What is restraining that and the Antichrist from coming to power right now is real simple. It's you. You see, there's enough Christians right now that if a great man was to arise on the world scene with the answers to COVID and the answers to the financial crisis of the world and the famine and all the wars and all the problems in the Middle East, all these things, the reason why he hasn't made his appearance is because 
that which is restraining, which is you, will continue to restrain until he, speaking of you, the Holy Spirit in you, is taken out of the way. Then the Antichrist can come to power. There won't be people like any one of you saying, that's not, that's not the Christ, that's the Antichrist. Because the believers are gone. Friends, we are on a, we're on the border of a big, big change. Just like it was with Pharaoh, just like it was in the 10th plague, I believe there is a night coming. And the Bible tells us, work because it's going to change. Be about your daddy's business. It's going to bless you and those around you. And as it says here, and thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist and sandals on your feet. That's weird. He's saying, eat your dinner with your clothes on. Why? Because get ready to move. Get ready to move. You see, loins girded, ready to go. That's what this is all about. They were to eat the lamb, last good meal they're going to have for a little bit, because the next day they were on their way to the promised land. And so it says here that um, you shall let none of it remain until morning. What remains of it till morning, you shall burn with fire and you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague shall not come upon you, destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be in your memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast of an everlasting ordinance. Interesting, God memorialized that. Stop here today because I believe again this is really important. God never wants us to forget what he did for us. Not so much this morning for non-believers, but for us as Christians. Don't forget that. Everywhere you go, God goes with you. I like that. I'm never alone. People in the world are alone. And sometimes if I don't remind myself, like coming together on a Sunday morning or reading my Bible on my own or listening to Christian radio or something else that reminds me of the greatness of God, I can begin to believe the lie of the devil saying, you're alone, you're in this all by yourselves. Nobody loves you, everybody hates you, bet you go eat some worms. Because that's what the devil does. He's a liar. This morning, if you're not a Christian, I, I want to tell you something. My heart breaks for you for a couple of reasons. First, you're lost and dead in your sins. That's really bad. But second of all, you are complete prey to the enemy. You have no one that protects you. No one protects you. And I want to encourage you this morning. Jesus died for you as well as any person that's been a Christian for 50 years. And the same thing that God will do for that person, he'll do for you. To take away your sins and to restore the communication to God where your life means something in eternity. I don't want God to look at me on judgment day saying, well, you made it. 
even as a Christian. I want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for obeying me. I know I'm the one that motivated you to do all those things, but I'm going to reward you as if you're the one that did it. That's good economics, friends. That's the way God works. So, do you want your life to mean something in eternity? Or just waste it away and be punished eternally for the things wrong? Well, the book of Jude says that there is an eternal punishment. I know there's a lot of religions today, even found within the Christian realm, that don't believe that hell's eternal, that doesn't believe that that hell's a place of punishment. It's simply because they won't read the Bible. But if you read the book of Jude, it very clearly talks about a place of eternal punishment. I don't want to see one person on this earth go there, not even my worst enemy. Because I realize that there's no way out. But for a person that's alive today that can hear this message, God loves you, died on the cross for you, took your place. He became our sin and died. Payment made in full. I like that. Which makes you a child of God. Wow. You mean I'm no longer a nobody? No, I'm a somebody. So are you. God made you in his image. Never forget that. And to be about your daddy's business because he loves you. You see, if we forget that, we'll believe the lie of the world. And and, and how does the devil do it? Hey, you're a nobody out there unless you wash your teeth with shiny bright. Okay, I'll run down and get some shiny bright and I'll be a somebody. Oh no, that doesn't work. No, you're, you're nobody unless you drive this kind of thing. Or wear these kind of clothes. When you become a Christian, God says, you're accepted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It doesn't matter about all of this stuff. I don't need anything to be who God wants me to be. Isn't that great news? You're set free from the manipulation of the world and of the devil. So see, our identity is found in him. He is who tells me who I am. And when I realize that, and then the blessing is to be around a bunch of other Christians who realize they get their identity from God. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank, what kind of car you drive. It's all going to burn, baby. There's no U-Hauls behind hearses. Hey, he's dead, and the casket is there in, in, the, in the grave. They're getting ready to lower it down to the ground. Okay, bring them. They start dumping stereos and TVs and Rolex watches into the. No. Doesn't make any difference. One life will soon be be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Always remember that. This morning, if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to accept Christ as your Savior. It's the most important thing you can do. And you just pray and you say, Lord. This is it. Sign the title lead of my life over to you. You People say, how can just a prayer make that difference? And I use this illustration so often. Just the same way you sign the title deed of your house over, and tonight you won't live in that house you just signed your deed over to. Or the car that you have, you sign the, the pink slip over, it's not your car anymore. That's just a signature on a piece of paper. An oral contract in the Bible meant everything. And when you say, Lord, you take my life, God says, I'll take it. I'll do something with you you won't believe. See, and God begins his restorative process in our life. 
God wants to restore you, fix you, bless you. Let him do that. Pharaoh didn't understand that. Didn't understand the real God. Who is this God? He said to Moses. God showed him. And God wants to show us, as Christians, as well as people that don't know him, how great he is. This morning, if you need to pray and get right with God, we're going to pray right now. And you can ask Christ to come into your life. Forgive your sins. Repent of the foolish way you have lived to define your life. That's what we repent from, is think of the goofy ways that we define our life. And God says, okay, from now on, I'm going to define your life. Wow. You ready for that? Ready to be free from the manipulation, the puppet strings of the devil in your life? Saying, well, if you're really going to be a somebody, you've got to do this. God says, you are somebody right now in me. If you want to get right with God, let's pray right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And I invite you into my life today. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me and rose from the dead to give me life eternal. I repent of the foolish ways that I have lived to be something. And so now, Make me who you want me to be. Write my name in your book of life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me, God, from on high. And help me be about your business every single day. And thank you for eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. You prayed that welcome to God's family.